0: Hi, and welcome to episode 7 of Divided by Design, a podcast series on systemic racism. My name is Mitch Landrew, and I'm the founder and president of ePluribus Unum. ePluribus Unum is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose mission is to build a more just, equitable, and inclusive South, uprooting the barriers that have long divided the region by race and class. This week, Divided by Design explores the psychology of racism and how systems designed to diminish the progress of women and people of color more than 200 years ago continue to strive and adversely impact black and brown communities nationwide. We seek to understand how these systems were put into place, their purpose and their lasting legacies in creating vast racial inequity within underprivileged communities across the United States. We will also discuss reconciliation in America and seek to answer the question, Can an America built on systemic racism ever admit to its sins and reconcile with those it has crippled for more than three centuries? As we reflect on the year 2020, one of the most turbulent and revolutionary years in the last 50 that we've experienced in this country, we seek to find answers to the serious questions about the racist ideologies that have cultivated such a vast racial inequity in America. These questions have become even more pronounced in a year when this country's long and uncomfortable history of racism was thrust directly into the global consciousness following the deaths of Amon Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and most notably, George Floyd. In addition to the racial turmoil generated by these high profile killings of Black citizens, the protests that followed, and the continued rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, this country was forced to address COVID 19 one of the most serious health pandemics of the last 100 years. At the time of this original broadcast, COVID-19 had killed nearly 300,000 U.S. citizens in 2020 and served as a marker for how racism in the healthcare industry also exploits people of color with a death rate of nearly three times that of white Americans. When looking back to the founding of this country and the wealthy white men who created the systems by which this country has operated, Two important questions come to mind. What was the psychological mindset of our founding fathers when they elected to create systems intentionally designed to exploit and weaken the rights of women and people of color? And, after more than 200 years of psychological oppression, how do we address these issues today in order to help reverse the damage caused to both white people and people of color? We're talking to advocates, historians, and experts. We hope to walk you through how we got here and how we can move forward towards healing and reconciliation. The truth is, we don't have a deficit of ideas in this country, but we do have a deficit of courage, and what a price we have all paid. Dr. Whitney Purdle, an award-winning author and assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, explains the origins of the racist ideologies that began establishing race as the basis for devaluing human beings.
1: Race is a social construction. That means that societies have created it and attached meaning to it. Race refers to a category of people, oftentimes based on phenotype and ancestry. But it was invented by Europeans during enlightenment through racialized pseudoscience as a way to explain differences between themselves and others. Um, Racism is the correlating system that then justifies treating people differently by racial group membership. Racism is also invented then, but is seen as the system and the organization of races into those hierarchies. That means that those who are at the top have the most access to resources, privileges, and power, um, and that these can be reinforced through systems and power even to this day.
0: Dr. Pertle believes racism has been so intertwined into American society over the past 200 years that for most people, especially for whites, racism is normal.
1: I think it's often hard to see these things because they're so normalized and built into the foundations of our country, our institutions, our ideologies, our socialization. Um, And so we really have to build up that sort of critical consciousness when we're thinking about these concepts. Um, But I think some of that starts with the historical foundation of understanding we invented this. (laughs) Um, And so we need to think about what it means to reinvent both our understandings of race and
0: racism. Dr. Peter Coleman, who serves as a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, understands that the adoption of the racist ideologies of the Europeans by American founding fathers was the beginning of this country's sinful legacy of racism.
2: I mean, I I, I see racism as um, one of the original sins of America. You know, rather than the American dream, I think racism is the American nightmare. Um, our country was founded on the betrayal and attempted genocide of its indigenous people. Its economy was founded on slavery, so racism is really in the DNA of, of this nation. All true that there are these structures and the structures are in our neurological systems, in our brains. Uh, you know, some of it is inherited and then much of it is learned. And so and and you can scale up those structures to you know opportunity structures and the prison yeah. industrial complex. You know, there are all of these structures that reinforce this. And so it is a, a complex system that is very hard to change.
0: New York Times best-selling author Jennifer Palmieri, who also served as a White House Communications Director during the presidency of Barack Obama, recently wrote an op-ed for Vanity Fair expressing the need for white women to also acknowledge their complicity in the construct and maintaining racial codes and racial bias throughout American history.
3: I, um, you know, at the time of the Floyd protests, I wrote a piece for vanity fair that was geared towards white women who, you know, were taking to their Instagram pages to try to solve racism in one single post (laughs) and tell them stop, um, you have, to, uh, you have to listen, learn, and sort of absorb the history of um, white women's role in maintaining a patriar- a white male patriarchy that um, uh, has done a lot of harm, you know, from the individuals to the woman who falsely accused Emmett Till of um, assaulting her, to the woman who falsely accused Manna Tulsa of assaulting her that led to the Tulsa Massacre, up to the Central Park Birdwatcher, right? That this is this... This is, say, you know, uh, you may not be personally responsible, but this is part of your legacy and your history, and you have to understand that.
0: Rachel Brown, the founder and executive director of Project Over Zero, which identifies race-based violence, believes that part of a lack of compassion and understanding that whites have for people of color comes from the lack of direct experiences shared between the two races.
4: I think also critically important is when we look at how we're divided and segregated, we talk a lot now about echo chambers and media bubbles and things like that. I think that often gets talked about on an ideological spectrum when the reality is, and if you look at the history of this country, often the things that were were shielded from in our our bubbles um, have been experiences um, from people with different um, backgrounds, whether that's race, religion, immigrant, non-immigrant. And I think that on when we're talking about systemic racism, we also have to look about the experiences that people have, not just in their real life, but the vicarious experiences. What is What, what, is, what story is our media telling? How is that inculcating different biases and narratives about characteristics of different groups, about these social hierarchies? Um, what are the stories being told in movies and television shows, and who's writing them yeah. and who's telling them? Um, we're so influenced by, by social pressure and our social perception. Um, and I think that, that talking here about specifically reaching white people who, who might experience a level of denial about systemic racism, who might find it threatening, it is absolutely critical um, to build role models and education as, as a long-term process.
0: Dr. Peter Coleman feels that most white people are not prepared to be open with the uncomfortable issue of race. And tend to see it as a topic of debate rather than a topic of dialogue. I think it is
2: about whites getting to a place where they can listen; they can perhaps drop some of the defensiveness and hear, um, and and be changed through those kinds of conversations. But they're hard conversations to have, and they're not things that we're prepared to do. You know, most of us, most of us are trained to uh, when we get into anything that's political or threatening we move into debate and we and a debate is a is a closed process of communication to win a game to win an argument yeah and the the opposite of that is something called dialogue which is listening to stories sharing stories with one another and really taking those in and allowing ourselves to be effective and to discover new things and those kinds of encounters where you really hear about the humanity of others and the struggle of others and the brightness of others, those are transformative and those can change people and groups of people um, who can then mobilize into real action.
0: Dr. Whitney Purtle believes that the intersectional oppressions that have been created to diminish racial value of minorities have worked according to plan, but that white people can use their privilege to lead change for the positive.
1: We have to understand um, how these intersectional oppressions work together to lay on burden after burden for particular sectors of our society but we also have to engage in what a healing practice looks like at that same level and it needs to be like all hands on deck sometimes that means you're checking your own privilege and your silence in a particular moment. Sometimes it means you're using uh, the privilege to leverage and benefit others. Um, There's so many different ways that has to come across, but it does come within like the grounding of a critical consciousness rooted in understanding these things that we've been talking about today. And then a belief that we might address and make some change towards reducing social problems. We see vast disparities by race in a whole host of outcomes, including COVID-19. For instance, that Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people are three times higher to die from COVID-19 than their white counterparts. We see those racial differences, but those differences aren't tied to a biological understanding of race. Remember, race is social construction. It's tied to systemic racism that puts particular groups in harm's way. We should stop asking if people believe if racism exists because there is so much evidence out there that says it exists that just i feel like we're taking steps back if we're thinking about solutions but asking if something is a problem it is a problem so our question needs to be less about does racism exist and what do we do about it it needs to be there is racism and here's some evidence and now what do we do about it like i just think that part of the question is at this point outdated and asking people to 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 debate whether that exists, I think just puts us in a cyclical path where we're not getting towards the solutions.
0: Jennifer Palmieri recognizes that the political dysfunction that has allowed the system of racial inequity to continue in America has more to do with people in power not understanding the true problems rather than a lack of desire to solve them
3: part of the problem with the, the, it, with the political dysfunction is not that people really disagree on solutions, but they don't agree on what the problem is, where the problem comes from. Um, and I think if people understand, uh, understood more about uh you know, why it is that Chicago, Milwaukee, um, Minneapolis developed the way they did, why those cities are so segregated, why there's not economic opportunities across the board in those, uh, in those cities as part of the great migration from the South of Black Americans, or, you know, why uh, healthcare is, the disparities exist in healthcare, they might be more willing to uh, support solutions that would make the society more equitable.
0: One of the biggest issues involving healthcare today is the deadly COVID virus. Dr. Whitney Purtle explains how systemic racism in the healthcare industry over the last century has caused a vast inequity for people of color's access to quality healthcare.
1: Well, take the racial disparities in COVID-19. You can't address health equity if you don't address racial equity as well. Um, when we're thinking about, you know, a move towards universal healthcare, which I'm a full supporter of. Um, But we know that there are racial bias in our health institutions. So that alone wouldn't address those bad outcomes by racial group differences. We could do the same thing if we look at education, we're seeing an increase in education gaps a lot of those are patterned by race. So our education equity is also going to be attached to race, racial justice equity as well. If we look at incarceration in prison and deta- um, detainment at the border, all of those things also address um, race, ethnicity. You know, It's just really hard to disentangle if we're really thinking about justice and what a just society looks like, we can focus on any institution. I think we need to, We need progress in all of those, but all of those are gonna have an undercurrent of racial injustice given the foundations of our country. So I would love if we talked more about race as a positive attribute that might many of us carry and more about how we can address racism to make sure those positive things are equal for everybody. And so really trying to disentangle, um, even though those things were co-created, we need to think about how to address racism. And part of that is being comfortable to talk about race.
0: In spite of centuries of racial inequality and injustice in America, Rachel Brown feels that aggressive and long-term action, not just words, can bridge the racial divides that have crippled Black and Brown communities across the country.
4: We didn't get to where we are overnight. Um, We didn't have the systemic, you know, the systemic racism that we have today is not something that just happened. We got here with decades, with centuries of concerted effort, of planning, of investment, and of action. And so we can't expect to address and undo these harms, to undo these systems created with centuries of work without concerted and committed efforts. And and it's not gonna happen overnight. We need to commit um, over extended period of time and also to act with urgency. But it really is, we're we're addressing a human-made problem. And I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that means we have agency. It's a human-made problem. And so there is a human-made solution instead of solutions, but it requires us to feel a sense of urgency and of agency and
0: to act. Dr. Peter Coleman believes that white men need to take a more humble approach to addressing the history of systemic racism by just listening to those who have been most affected by a lifetime of racial injustice.
2: What I think is important, particularly if if we're talking about whites and white men, is that we learn to listen. You know, there, there is a concept called radical listening, uh, yes. which is about um, really um, recognizing that we need to be quiet and take in information and really um, have it influence us. And, and one of the things that research has shown is that particularly people in power, if they shut up and listen and pay attention to the struggles, the, the, the extraordinary qualities of people in lower situations of lower power, um, the whole system can be transformed by that. So part of it, I think, is, a, is radical listening. Oftentimes, it is coming out of a difficult time like this, and then it does take a variety of things. The good news with complicated problems like this is that there are many different potential solutions, and we don't always know
0: where they come from. Reconciliation is an essential aspect of this discussion of racial inequity and injustice. The word reconciliation has been mentioned more than ever in a year that saw a rise in the number of high-profile police shootings and brutality cases, an increase in the number of race-related incidents of violence, and subsequently, the evolution of global protests against the treatment of Black people in America, fueled by the murder of George Floyd and the escalating power of the Black Lives Matter movement. The great irony of the use of the word reconciliation in this case lies in its meaning. To cause to accept or be resigned to something not desired. The reality in America is that for nearly 400 years, people of color have never faced a moment of true equality or respect. There has never been true fellowship among the races that could actually lead to reconciliation. Rachel Brown feels that in order to move this country forward, all Americans, especially those in power, must recognize America's long and cruel history of racial injustice and inequity and the price that we all have paid.
4: The US is a post-atrocity context when we look at our history um, of slavery, of the genocide at the founding of, of this country, and that we haven't fully reckoned we haven't fully reckoned with that past. And we haven't, if you think the word reconcile is to, to restore relations to being right if they weren't right in the first place, well, that's a really big task ahead of us. Right. right. So the question is, how do we make that? How do we make something that's whole? Yeah. And to do that really requires a recognition um, of what's happened to this point and a shared understanding. And then um, that shared commitment to say, we're not gonna let this not only not happen again, but continue to be the way that it is.
0: Dr. Whitney Purtle believes that the path to racial equality and equal justice will be a long and winding one requiring aggressive action and empathy for those who have been disenfranchised. The success of this can only be achieved when there is a true and honest respect for the equality of all people living in this country.
1: I am not going to engage in a dialogue with somebody if they don't see my humanity. That to me is the bottom level for engaging and thinking about healing or a common ground or you know they have to bring a certain set of ideas and understanding that all humans are created equal before I even engage them on what to do next. And so, yes, we need love and action, we need empathy, we need kindness, but we need an understanding that all people are created equal and therefore should have equal outcomes and equity in, in all of these institutions for us to really move forward.
0: Dr. Purdle has been inspired by the trailblazers in American history who have risked everything fighting for racial equality and justice in America. The current generation of activists fighting for these very rights are prepared and poised to make a difference in leveling the playing fields of racial equity and justice in years to come.
1: I mean, every time I I go deep into movements that have been successful in the past, Uh I'm always in awe of the way, the risks, I guess, that individuals took um, at the personal level for their families, but also like as a collective, what they were able to put on the lines. Um, but when I look at movements that are happening now, especially among youth, I'm also in awe. And I think that we have a lot to learn. And so I think that I'm just any of those people who put boots on the ground and risk, um, you know, put their risk out there for change. I just wanna give major shout outs and kudos to. Um, so I think, yeah, it's those moments we haven't seen it, I guess, widespread that we've had true reconciliation, but we've had we have made progress. Um, and it is people who are out there pushing for that progress um, that really, I think, should get our support. Angela Davis says that freedom is a constant struggle. We are going to be in this struggle together, but we're struggling for liberation to win and that would benefit everybody.
0: During one of the most turbulent and revolutionary periods in the 21st century, with more than 200 years of organized race-based injustice in America, we now take full aim at the challenges brought on by the centuries-long scourge of race and racism in this country. It is our mission and our goal to continue creating dialogue that recognizes this country's history of systemic racism with hopes that through serious discussions and positive actions among people and communities of all races, that we can find a common ground and a new approach on how to, once and for all, end the scourge of racial inequity and injustice in this great country of which we all are equals. You might be asking, why E Pluribus Unum? Our founding national motto translates to, out of many, one. It is a statement about our diversity, our connectedness, our indivisibility, our interdependence. Although our nation continues to make progress on race, we have also allowed ourselves to be divided by anger, by hate, and by fear. That has come at a deep cost for all of us. We cannot break down the barriers of race and class as a divided nation. We can only fulfill America's promise of justice and opportunity if we are united. We are, in fact, better together. This is Mitch Landrieu, and we thank you for tuning in to this Divided by Design podcast. Peace and God bless. For more information on this podcast series or how to get involved in our efforts to advance equity in the South, go to www.unumfunda.org. Follow us at Unum Fund on social media and email us at podcast at unumfund dot org.